We are going on tour. The Glamorous Trash Podcast and my book tour have collabed and we're coming to a city near you. Click the link in the show notes to to get all of the deets. We're coming to New York City on June 4th. We are kicking off an event with Jon Stewart. No big deal. That's our very first show in New York City. Then we're coming to Washington, D.C., Nashville, Chicago, Santa Fe, Albuquerque, Seattle, Portland, and Los Angeles. So get your tickets now. We are doing three different events because, you know, I'm always doing the most. That's just on brand, right? First, there's a glamorous trash party. It's the podcast meets the book tour meets Coachella, a live show featuring podcast segments, book segments, a very special guest. And of course, there's a runway walk at the end for people to show off their fits because the dress code to every event is obviously glamorous trash. We are also doing a cookie country club. It's the anti-country club country club. And it's very dreamy. You get like a bunch of products. There's little events. And it's a more intimate event where you meet other cookies and listen to a book chat with what me and another special guest and then the final event the behind the bangs writing workshop i finally did it put it together put together this workshop because i wrote this book in many ways for younger me and younger me would not have gotten off her couch unless there was also a workshop being taught i wanted the gyms i wanted i wanted the knowledge i wanted the education that's what i would have wanted so i've decided i'm doing it and in the workshop is going to be the six writing gyms that took me forever to learn 15 years in my 15 year career as a tv writer and author and blah 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 all the other things i've written there are six things that i always use and all of those are in this workshop so if you have an interest in writing sign up all the ticket links are live today click the show notes click my instagram we are coming to a city near you and there's going to be some meet and greets i'll sign some copies of books we'll give out more books and i have uh, some pieces of merch that i'm taking on the road and i'm gonna give them out at the shows Welcome to Celebrity Book Club. This is a podcast that recaps and celebrates the memoirs of badass female celebrities who have been torn down by tabloids, dissected by social media, and faced heartaches and triumphs and come out of it all even stronger. I'm your host, Chelsea Devantes. I am a comedian, TV writer, and filmmaker. And this week we are book clubbing Sheila E.'s memoir, written in 2014, titled The Beat of My Own Drum. And just such a perfect title for her. This is a book about trailblazing and how Sheila became one of the first female drummers and singers to go mainstream. And it's also a book about how to write that you were engaged to Prince and Carlos Santana in a way that will make people go, uh, what? Sheila E's hit song, Glamorous Life. Before we get into the episode, this is our second week as an Apple Spotlight pick, and we are the first podcast they've ever spotlighted, so which I'm still super excited about. So if you're new to the podcast, I highly recommend your first episode be a celebrity that you adore. And listen to that one first just to see how surprising these books can be. Or if you want a recommendation, I recommend starting with Jessica Simpson or Delta Burke. I also book club all of these memoirs in my Instagram stories every night. It's actually how the podcast got started. So if you want to follow me on Instagram, in my stories, I am recapping memoirs almost every single night. And 
it's like a book club, but it's a digital book club where people just like send messages and interact with the books in a way that makes a really cool conversation that I then bring to this podcast when we record it. So if you want to follow me, link is in the show notes at Chelsea Devantes. And also you can find the information about our incredible guests and the artists and the books that we're covering are all in the show notes. We do swear a lot. And more than that, these books get raw. Like they talk about like the craziest stuff you can go through in life. So just the general content is (laughs) probably R rated. And um, the audio in this episode, you should know. It dropped out on my end, which is such a bummer. We had to use my backup audio, but it did make me panic and spend a lot of money on new podcast equipment. So hopefully, knock on wood, that won't happen again. Um, and I'm excited for this episode. It's a book that uh, I, I it shocked me in ways that I that I don't normally get surprised in. And we were a little. I was a little harsh on this book, which is not my normal vibe. So it's just a totally, it's a totally different episode. I hope you adore it. And you can always DM me and send messages. And we still talk about the books and my Instagram stories afterwards. Okay, so let's get into the episode. My guest today is Casey St. Ange. Hi, Casey. Hi. Uh, Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh. Casey is a phenomenal showrunner writer and comedian. She co-executive produced Watch What Happens Live with Andy Cohen for years. She's written for Rosie O'Donnell and David Letterman. She's Emmy nominated. She has written a YA novel. She ran Busy Phillips talk show, Busy Tonight on E! And she now co-hosts the wildly popular podcast, Busy Phillips is doing her best. Um, As you can maybe tell from the background, she has a dog. And um, (laughs) most, (laughs) most exciting for this podcast is that you have ghostwritten a couple celebrity memoirs. It's true. Oh, it's true. We're going to get into it. But first, um, okay. I introduce all my guests with the story of how we first met. Casey and I met at this luncheon for a very famous politician who wanted to connect with the youth. And so they brought a bunch of comedians in to write bits for their Twitter, which they never used. They didn't use a one of them. But it was a really fun day. And Casey and I met just across the table, like pitching bits to each other. And she mentioned that Every year she has, would you call it like an orphan's Thanksgiving? Yeah, like just a, yeah, free for all Thanksgiving because, uh, you know, when we remember when we first moved to New York City and nobody, we could never get back home for Thanksgiving because we were working. And so we were always just looking for like a pickup game of Thanksgiving dinner somewhere. (laughs) And so once we, you know, had our own place, we were like, oh, people can take the train out and just have dinner with us and not worry about flying home to New Mexico or wherever for Thanksgiving. So (laughs) Yes, which is a long-ass expensive flight. Um, Right. Well, it's funny because Casey in passing was like, yeah, I I have this big Thanksgiving. I don't think you even were like, would you like to come? You're just like, oh, I do this thing. And when Thanksgiving came around, I contacted a friend and I was like, do you uh, have that woman's email address so I can um, (laughs) ask her if I can come to her Thanksgiving? And when I got out there, it was like the most beautiful event. There was probably like 40 people there from all walks of life. And I have the funniest thing to me being on this podcast is that I I have a picture of me on the train on the way to your house and I'm reading... (laughs) I'm reading the memoir, It's Not Okay, from Andy Dorfman from The Bachelorette. Great breakup <laughs> book. <laughs> um, so it feels very kismet. Yes, very kismet. Okay. 
So before we get into anything, what is it like writing a celebrity memoir? Tell us everything you can without breaking an NDA. You know, it's interesting because every stars, they're just like us. Every celebrity is different. So they all have different ways that they want to approach writing their memoir. And so, so many people like want to take a first pass at it. And then they just want some like help punching it up or making it cohesive. Other people are just like, there's, I'm never touching a keyboard. Let's be honest. <laughs> and so uh, this is going to be me telling you a bunch of stuff and then you're going to like get it ship shape or whatever. But I like like it because I'm really a stickler for like putting a puzzle together or like almost solving like a mystery. I like to do that. And like our lives are kind of puzzles and mysterious to us sometimes, I think, uh, because, you know, your oh, that's memory... so beautiful. That's such a good way to put it. <laughs> your memories are fragmented, and sometimes you remember things a certain way, and we'll get into this when we're talking about Sheila's book. She's remembering things a certain way, and, you know, I happen to be, like, a huge student of Prince and his life and career and everyone that is sort of like in his orbit at the time. And so I I am like some of these things that she's remembering in a certain way, I'm not remembering. I mean, not that I was uh-huh. there, but I'm like, I don't, I'm not sure it happened exactly like she's remembering it, but that's like part of the fun of helping someone with their memoir is getting them to like put the pieces together. And it's always very funny to inform someone that something that they remember so well could not have happened that way just because of like (laughs) (laughs) dates and history. And you're like, this, this could not have happened in 1992. I'm sorry to tell you because you were still in college and you know, so (laughs) it's just weird stuff like that. Yeah. I love what you said about it being a puzzle. Cause that's also how I feel when I read them. Like I feel like people will often be like, well, well, it's all ghostwriters anyway. It's not really them. And I really distinctly feel that Every single woman's spirit comes through in every book because there's too many pages. There's too many pages you're going to show up in your book, whether you orated it, whether you worked on it, whether you wrote it yourself, like the spirit is there. And I love you affirming like they're there. Like this is their book, whether they type it or not. For sure. And you're totally like as a writer, as like an assistant on the, you're at the mercy of the person's stories or what they're willing to share with you. So there have been times when like somebody has told me the most amazing stories and I'm like, oh my God, this is going to be great. And then they're like, we can't say any of that, you know? And I'm just like, (laughs) oh, okay. What do you want to say? And they want to say like, I was a kid with big dreams. And, you know, and you're like, yeah, but that other stuff was more interesting, but it's their story. So you have to, you know, you just have to help them tell their story. Well, and also it's why, like, I hope you write every single celebrity memoir ever, because I also think there are some ghostwriters that don't get a story or just like, okay, whatever. And you need someone there to be like, no, your story is a value and you should share it. And also like everyone talks about having big dreams. So like, let's move it along here. Um, Okay. So (laughs) I will say when I, on our first meeting, I would say within 30 seconds, it became clear you're a huge Prince fan. I mean, like it is just, everyone knows it about you. You're just like my home decor. (laughs) Yeah. Like yeah. that. I mean, like, I, I mean, think there were like seven pins on your bag and then like another prince thing on your jacket. And like, yeah. So I was like dressed in prints. And then when you came to my house, I'm pretty sure you sat under like a portrait of him that I'd had commissioned yes. by a painter. So, you know, just stuff like that, just the normal stuff. <laughs> I want to point something out right now is that, like, like I said, I'm a fan 
Prince didn't like the word fan. He liked to say fam because fan is short for fanatic. And he thought that was weird. So, um, but I would like to point out that right now I'm wearing Sheila E's earrings that actually belonged (gasps) to her. I'm sorry. What? (laughs) How did you get those? Um, When I first moved to Los Angeles in the first weekend that I was here, Sheila E was having an estate sale at her house. And I was like, my God, so many people that were like in the know were like, you know, you're in LA, you should go to Sheila E's house. She wasn't there. She was on this cruise that she threw like the Sheila E cruise. But her sister (laughs) Zena was there. And Zena helped me pick out these earrings. Zena, which many of you, if you know Sheila E, you'll know that's her sister. She's in the Glamorous Life video. And I also have Sheila E's cowbell right here as well. Oh, you have the cow... Casey, like, I knew you were coming today, like, with a repertoire, but, like, I've, I'm already <laughs> bowled over. <laughs> okay, so just for anyone who doesn't know Sheila E, because she's both huge and also there's people who could be like, I've never heard of her. Um, exactly. But she's, she's an incredible drummer and singer. Her albums have had huge success. Glamorous Life is like her biggest well-known hit, which uh, we, we played at the beginning of this episode. Um, <laughs> she's also a drummer in like, like kind of anytime you watch a big performance on TV, look for Sheila E. It's most likely her. Um, and our producer, Corinne, Actually, when we were doing the J-Lo, J-Lo episode, she looked up the American Idol performance that we talked about in the J-Lo episode. And she was like, wait, yeah. is Sheila E. drumming in that performance? And it's like, yeah, yes. like she's in everything. So let's read the first paragraph of page one and dive in. For a long time and well into my adult years, I was afraid of the dark. I had to sleep with a light on and I was drawn toward it like a moth. Some nights I'd wait until sunrise before going to bed. Over time, I realized that the blackness was only a reminder of a different kind of gloom, a relentless, debilitating fear that stemmed from some unspeakable memories. Within a blessed childhood, a few isolated incidents had filled me with a secret shame that might have imprisoned me forever had I allowed it to. So I find that deeply, deeply moving because not only is it like a theme in these books, but I want to say, and you can correct me if I'm wrong and maybe I just have a lens on it, but I think... I think a theme in 99% of people's lives is tragedy happens, which then turns into shame, which then turns into emotional imprisonment. And she really clearly spells that out. And and this is your trigger warning for some very traumatic stuff that's going to happen in the book regarding childhood molestation. Yes. Yeah, I think I think it's really interesting and it really spoke to me because not to get too dark or to put too fine a point on it is that Well, it we get really... really dark on this podcast, Casey. <laughs> so like Well, I was just going to say that 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 like what she was describing almost nearly exactly mirrors my life at that time in my life when I was a child. And yeah. further, that is what turned me on to print in like an indirect way. So I'm in this place in my life right now where I'm seeing all kinds of connections in a weird way like that. I'm, I feel like I'm constantly tripping balls. I'm not, but (laughs) I just like, I feel this connection because it was like really when I was a little kid, the first time I ever saw Prince, it was like, his song, I Want to Be Your Lover, introduced me to the concept of sexual consent. And it introduced me to the concept of somebody respectfully asking for something that there shouldn't be shame or or secretiveness surrounding it. And so I was like, 
you know, when I, I, when I first saw him, I was like, Ooh, gold pants. Like I was seven, you know? And I was like, those yeah, gold yeah, pants yeah. are great. <laughs> um, but then as I was like, it, that song, like on American bandstand flipped a little switch in my mind, like, Oh, there are people, there are men in this world that think about these things that I shouldn't even know about yet in a much different way than what I've experienced so far in my short life. So that gave me like a little hope to be like, I'm going to get off this farm and I'm going to like meet a guy. I'm going to meet a boy like that one day. Uh, Well, first of all, thank you so much for sharing because I, I didn't know what was in Sheila's book and and I, but I do know you because we're friends. I do know your story. And so when I was reading her book, I was like, this is so wild that both Sheila and you and probably so many people found Prince, you know, for this like consent and healing to life's most horrific nightmares. Yeah. Um, and thank you for sharing. I didn't know if you want to share, but thank <laughs> you so much because I truly, I mean, I think these books can help everyone. And I think everyone sharing more stories to to show the truth of the world helps yeah. and like and and just putting out different messages into culture. Well, I like I said, I just identified so much with her talking about like you just want to keep it a secret. And it's just, it couldn't be weirder. It couldn't be weirder to talk about. It couldn't be weirder to live. And it's very, you know, talking about your memory and things being a puzzle. Well, especially when you're a child. Yes. Where you're just like, what is right and what is wrong? And like, are am I making this up? And no, of course, I'm not making this up. And, you know, and so many people want to tell you like, you know, I believe you, but I don't want you to say anything or I half believe you, but I think you might be mistaken or just like, you know, they believe you, but they're not going to tell you that they believe you. Or they're dealing with their own shit as they're listening to you. And so then that response they give you is a bad one for you, but it's yes, really about yeah. them. Yeah. And also just to talk about it and give people listening a context, um, So Sheila E. keeps saying um, the bad thing that happened to me, the bad thing that happened to me, and it's capitalized of each word. And like, I wasn't a great fan of the ghostwriting in this book. It really reminded me of an improv 101 lesson where it's like, if you're like, what's in the box? What's in the box? Like by the time you name it, like nothing's going to be funny. Like no one cares. Like you've, you've, it's, you just have to name it. You just have to say it. And she, she plays that game with us in the book until she speaks about being sexually assaulted as a child um, multiple times before the age of five. And when she she's five. Yeah. And that's sort of what we're talking about right now. And, and yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, it's, it is interesting. And, you know, um, what's interesting to me is that like, I kind of feel like she stepped right up to the edge of ripping off the bandaid, like right to begin with, and then sort of like teased it out in a way. Like I'm never a fan of teasing something out for effect. Like I'm, yes. I'm just like, just say it. Like really regardless of all details, it's not a good storytelling device yeah. like, for anyone, for anyone, for anything. If it's a story about like Lord of the Rings, like we know it's a ring, like it's a yeah. gold ring, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. So just, just say it, just get it out. Also, I've never read the book. Maybe we don't, but whatever. well, yeah, I mean, you know, um, but it, I will say it does kind of mirror how in life when you're a kid and you've gone through that experience, you keep stepping up to the line to get your courage up to say, Hey, this happened. And yeah. then like, it's like, you know, how many times do you step back and you're like, it's not the moment to say this, but as, yeah. a, li- as a literary device, it is lacking. And I do think she was like, I can't open my book with this. And so she like pushed it off. But uh, it's it's a huge part of her life. And I will say another bummer about the book is that she does um, description collage for the early <laughs> chapters of childhood, which is another like thing that I think happens in a lot of these books where they're just like, 
you know, and then my mom's kind of like this and the food is kind of like this. My uncle's kind of like this. And you're just like, like if you were sitting across from someone doing that, you'd be like, who cares? Like, tell me something. Yeah. Like, tell yeah. me a, a story. specific anecdote story. Yes. Like, or a point or a meaning or an insight. Um, so that, that's an, a bummer. And then she gets into how she was molested by a neighbor boy. And it's such a tough story, but also she's using what is now considered us a derogatory word to describe him. And so um, that's a tough part of the book. And, and then the story she describes is just heartbreaking. But then she has two older cousins who also molest her when they babysit her. And, and, then, um, and then a family friend, a grown man, um, when he babysits her, um, rapes her when she's five years old. And yeah. kind of like what you're saying, she doesn't have the language. She doesn't have the understanding. And it's like, this is sort of like why they have to change the way, like, cops who deal with sexual trauma victims. Like, how, how they're interrogated, how answers come through. Because it's just when trauma happens, your mind shuts off and then, and then you become the worst witness when you're the witness that matters. Right. Yeah. I think, I think we need to start from a place of just like, because I get it. Like that's such a serious allegation to make, you know, so you obviously want to make sure that it's true. I think we need to start coming from a place of like, whatever's making you say this, it is serious and it's serious that you need help. Like that's the most serious thing. So coming from a place of just being like, we absolutely believe that there's a serious event in your life. Now let's like figure out the exact details of it so that we can start the steps for healing and, you know, and and figuring it out and and what's going to happen moving forward. But I think like, yeah, trying to cast doubt is just, it's, it's insult to injury. Well, and also she's five. She's five. Like, yeah. <laughs> if you told a five-year-old, like, the sky's green enough times, they'd be like, okay. Right. You exactly. know? Um, so, yeah. So, that's a tough part of the book, and and we'll come back to it. But her family is, is um, you know, she just kind of stuffs this secret down and moves on with her life. Her family's very musical. Her dad's in this big band. He doesn't read music. She doesn't read music. Mariah Carey doesn't read music. Prince didn't read music either. Yeah. Oh my God. And also like, she talks about like being in band class and her teacher is like, read the notes on the page. And she's like, I can't. And the teacher's like, you need to, but I don't know how music works, but shouldn't you get more praise if you can just hear it? (laughs) Like that seems harder. Well, you know, what's really interesting about Sheila is just like her, her musicianship really is very, it's just incredible. Like, I I mean, I would just encourage anyone, even if you're not necessarily like a huge music fan, or you're not a huge fan of the type of music that she plays. Like, I just challenge anyone to go on YouTube, check out one of her performances. She just like, she has perfect rhythm. My husband's a drummer. So he's in constant awe of her. And he's always talking about like, you know, technical things that she's capable of. She just has like the way that they describe sometimes people have perfect pitch. She has perfect rhythm. And so she can like get in the pocket. Wow, that's cool. She can also um, like play polyrhythms, which is playing two different rhythms at one time. She has something, I think it's called four-way independence or something where all four of her limbs can do four different things at the same time, <laughs> like when she's playing percussion or the drums. And so it's really, it's a feat. It's really a feat. And she's wow. a wonder. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, while I've, like, always known Sheila E. or, you know, uh, known about her, I didn't really pull up her videos and watch it until I was doing this book recap on Instagram. And my 
she took my breath away. Just seeing yeah. her drumming and singing at the same time, and she kind of has a reserved stage nature. Like when she's on yes. stage, she's she's both drumming and singing, but she's like reserved, and it, it was it was breathtaking. I was like, oh my yeah. god! Like, and she's just it, always like always for all time. And I love. I've seen her obviously perform live. She just, everything's imbued with such joy. And so that's a joy to watch. It's always fun to watch somebody just doing what they're born to do. Oh my God, totally. That's also like why they always tell artists like, just get out there and have fun, which is like my least <laughs> fucking favorite advice. It's like, fuck you, you have fun. But um, um, but but yeah, it comes from the right place of like watching someone with joy is, is just so joyful. Um, Okay, yeah. so then we get into a chapter where she's like, I, she tells us she used to make fun of Hispanic kids growing up until she realized that she was Hispanic too. And she thought she was black until she was a teenager. And she just like doesn't realize that she's Mexican because of how she's treated in the world. And she says her dad is Mexican and her mom is Creole, but both of their birth certificates say they are black. And hers says she's white. And she like has this huge like identity thing that's like so difficult. And I, it's really wild to read, but I think it, it not only shows like how complicated identity is in general, but like, especially when you're mixed. And then it's like an example of how, like how hard it can be to fit into a box and how far we've come in our like conversations about those boxes and how much farther we have to go. And like, also just like calling out like those boxes were created by white men for the census. And so like a yes. lot of people don't fit them because they weren't made from like a culturally nuanced perspective. They like white dudes made them to count, to count people. They wanted to count right. people. Right. And so, which like also really reminded me of Mariah Carey, who like, some people found out she was black from her book, uh, mostly white people, but <laughs> sure. um, um, but a lot of her book was about like how painful it was to be mixed and to have to navigate that in entertainment. Also for all you Bachelorette fans, uh, Taysha did a bunch of interviews about defining as being mixed and her, her dad is black and her mom is Mexican and people got mad at her for not just saying she was black because of all the fucked up shit in this country that we've done to black people and the one drop rule. And then, but then, you know, she's like, but I am half Mexican and I'm so proud of that. Are you a Bachelor fan at all, by the way? I don't watch The Bachelor. Good for you. But I am a fan of talking about these boxes. It's just, I th- I'm sure that she grew up in a time in the 60s which is such recent history where it was either like white or other. And so I'm sure a lot of people didn't even parse out what their identity was because it didn't really, it didn't affect your your social or economic status in any way. It was just white and other. Yeah, and, and colorism or not colorism. Exactly. So everyone's just not even speaking about these really important like sort of cultural identities, you know, just not talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. And just the way that she grew up in the Bay Area, I'm sure where she lived and and who was constantly around her, like sort of informed what she thought. It was really surprising to me that she that she was like, yeah, I didn't even know that I was that. Yeah, you know, it really hit home with me. Not the specifics of her story, but I did really relate to how difficult identity can be. And I think it can be difficult for a lot of people for many reasons. For me, it was because I found out I was 
a donor kid when I was a teenager. And uh, I lived half my life thinking the wrong person was my biological dad, which I talked about on the Demi Moore episode. And, you know, my mom had already divorced him anyway when I was a kid. She'd been married a couple of times and I had multiple last names. And then I found out I was a donor kid and went on this journey to find like my real dad and you know, she told me he was a medical student. He was part of this research program they participated in. And she told me he was Hispanic. So I would look, have like a chance to look more like I came from her husband. But then like, what does that mean? You know, what does it mean when you're a donor kid? And how do I identify when there are answers I'm still searching for for myself, you know, like all I have is my mom and a DNA test and I have no culture. I have white privilege and I've always had to wonder like, where do I actually belong? And I think the answer is nowhere (laughs) except for with other donor kids, which is why I'm so happy I've been talking about it on the podcast because I actually met another donor kid who DM'd me and they were like, oh my God, like I'm, I was also a secret because, you know, if you were born in the eighties with a donor to heterosexual parents, chances are very high. You were born a shameful secret because, and I mean, you can watch documentaries about this shit, but like the stuff they did with donors in the eighties, it'll truly make you sick. Like the government is only starting to regulate it because dudes were just like jizzing in cups and walking away. It's like, you got to circle back here. Yeah, I have uh, not exactly similar, but my father had a different, like sort of unknown to everyone father. And that was a huge family secret, which we've recently solved through 23andMe, um, but yes. also contacted his real family and they were like, um, deleted all their social media. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> because I was like, hey, would you want to maybe know about this guy that was my father that was in your family? And they were like, not only do we not, but we also are shutting down our Facebooks. Not only that, but we don't even want to post uh, pictures of the food we ate. <laughs> so that was kind of weird, but I get it. I, I mean, who like it was out of the blue to like contact them. Man, that is wild. But also, you know, it speaks to why this stuff is so complex because families are crazy and your identity comes from your family. So I just really loved how honest she was. Like she didn't have to be that honest with with like you know, making fun of people than realizing she was Hispanic. Like, and and I think that at this moment in time, we like to believe we're like very woke and very educated on these conversations, but we have so much farther to go. And often I feel like we're stopping these identity conversations at like a box or a label, but it's just so much more, you know, a human is so much more complex than that. Like given that, you know, her own birth certificate says she's white but she's treated as a black woman, but she's also Mexican and Creole. And like, it's just a complex topic. And I loved that she opened up about it because we need to have like more nuanced conversations, I feel like, than what we're normally having. Okay, back to the book. One day when Sheila is 13, a group of girls are like, 
We challenge you to a race. Like you're going to run to the end of the block and beat this girl's sister who's, who's, she's the fastest runner. And you're like, oh yeah, like they're 13. She's racing. No, Sheila wins the race and they're like, congratulations. That was your initiation into the East 21st Street gang. And now <laughs> Sheila's in a gang, which like, by the way, of all initiations, like that is like one of the more tamer ones, like a sorority yeah. initiation where they like circle your cellulite is much worse than what she yeah. went through. <laughs> completely there are way worse things also i'm going to say something here that might be controversial okay okay ready sheila, for it. sheila is saying that she didn't realize that she was like being initiated into a gang i'm thinking that like maybe she just doesn't pay a lot of attention to certain things you know I will say that there are a number of things that surprise her in the book that surprise me that she was surprised. Yes, I, I completely agree. You know, I'm just going to say right now, it's it's not a great book. <laughs> while, while she has like great parts to her and I loved reading it as a book. Yeah. Mm, not a good one. Which is interesting because it got like a good, it got a handed and uplifting from Kirkus Reviews. And like as a writer, I live to appear in Kirkus Reviews, even if it's like anonymous and ghostwriting. So I'm like, how? what did Kirkus see that I'm not seeing? But yeah, I totally agree. And on the being surprised by something tip, there's another big surprise coming that I'm like, how could you not have known okay, this? Call, well, but, call it out when we get there. Yes. But first, okay, so she's in a gang and she's really getting into like her identity and she finds out MLK Day is not a national holiday at her school. By the way, still not a national holiday and most jobs make you go to work but then also celebrate President's Day and you have that off. So fucked up. So she or organizes a walkout and then she's like mlk would have never supported this and it's like i actually i, I think he was walkouts were his all thing, about man. walking out <laughs> like it was it was he's for peaceful protests and she was like yeah. he would have hated this and i was like what but okay then it goes awry and turns into a riot and she gets kicked out of school and her parents send to another school and she finally leaves the gang so okay so we're gonna take a little break when we come back, she gets engaged to Carlos Santana and Prince. <laughs> Sibling fights are unavoidable. But what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother. But that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondry's podcast, Disintel, is hosted by comedians Sydney Battle and Matt Balasai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Disintel on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. I started this podcast because I have been obsessed with memoirs my entire life. And I can't believe it, but I got to write my own. And it comes out on June 4th, and you can order it right now. The book, you know, I was asked to describe it, and I said, it is an absolutely harrowing, traumatic memoir 
but funny. So if that sounds good to you, order it. Let me give you some topics that are in this memoir. A female best friendship breakup. How I got my break into Hollywood. When I found out my dad was not my real dad. The time I dated a magician. Are those last two related? Who's to say? Read the book. Growing up in Utah. Growing up around cults. How I got into therapy. Listen, I could keep going. Each chapter title is a different woman's name in my life. Some are heroes. Some are motherfucking villains. But you know what? A villain and a hero, what are both of those things? A leading role. And we do love women in our leading roles. So pre-order the book. It matters a lot. I linked everywhere that you can buy it in the show notes, but you know, go anywhere. Also, I am reading the audiobook personally. So I'm personally narrating it. So if you like this podcast, get my longest podcast ever. And the audiobook is also available for pre-sale everywhere you get audiobooks. And thank you so much for listening to this podcast. You are the reason I got to write a memoir. So thank you so, so much. Okay, welcome back. So Sheila has left the gang. She's really getting back into music and she starts auditioning to be a drummer and she plays in these bands and she's also like a woman who can drum and they're like, whoa, ladies can drum, which like really makes me laugh. Like the patriarchy can turn anything masculine. Like tattoos are essentially art and they're like, I'm drawing a sick fucking koi fish on your arm. Tattoos are a man's job. And then like, you know, cooking, you could be like, oh, only ladies cook. And then, oh, no, you can put those shows on TV. And suddenly it's like, I'm the man of the kitchen and everything's on fire. We talk about this all the time that any type of like craft or art or anything, women develop it to the point where it's worth <laughs> stealing. And then men are like, oh, no, no, no. I'm in charge of the drums now. I'm in charge of the cooking. Uh, I'm yes. in charge of just whatever. Not like, I do it. Yeah. Yes. Like, like just any art or craft. Also the, the same trajectory of like uh, black people and then white people steal it and other cultures. Yeah. And then like it's totally. Yeah. Early in Hollywood, women were like doing a lot of screenwriting, like because it was just basically like a work a day job and like people would just send in their scripts, like mail in their scripts. And so it was the thing that like women did, like banging out these scripts. And then once oh. Hollywood became like a bigger deal, it was like, oh, no, no, no. Here's what's going to happen. Men do it now. Wow. I did not know that. Well, and it's also true. in the book, she's like most of the drummers in ancient cultures were women because they kept the heartbeat of life, which really makes sense. You know, where it's like, yep. Yeah. And then and then men took it over as a male profession. So, okay. So she's in bands. People are like, whoa, it's a lady. We don't know what to do. Um, and she really builds herself <laughs> up as a drummer. And one night her dad, who has a big band, loses his drummer and she begs to take the guy's spot. Um, and her dad is like, mom, no, you're 15. By the way, at this part of the book, I was like, she's 30. No, she's 15. <laughs> and, um, her mom and her force her dad to audition her in the living room. And she's so good. And, and also is the only one who knows all the songs on such short notice that she goes on stage that night and performs in front of 3,000 people. And her dad realizes she's amazing on stage. She nods to her to take a solo. And she says she blacks out and, and that she realizes like she's found her purpose and that this is like what she's supposed to do. And I, this part of the book I, I loved. And also like I really relate to your best performances giving you the feeling of blacking out, especially yeah. in the beginning. Yeah. Um, and, 
And yeah, I just thought it was cool. I really liked the way that um, the, when she was talking about performing and being like transported and almost transformed, I really dug that because I found it to be very personal and like it must be coming from her. She's constantly talking about how she has these butterflies in her stomach, but they're not like the kind that make you sick. They're like exciting for her. And then at some point she starts to feel like the butterflies are like flying up and, and out of her and like, you know, almost like she's having this out of body experience um, constantly performing which I think I can really identify with and aspire to like in anything, you know, whenever you get into like a flow or a groove of doing something and it feels almost like someone else is doing it for you and you're just getting to watch it, like how hard you're killing it. Like, I feel like that just happens to her every time. Well, one weird book thing is that, so two chapters before this chapter, the quote heading the chapter was a JFK quote about landing on the moon. And I was like, yes. what the fuck is this doing here? Because all the other quotes were like her music lyrics. So then, so, and then I was like, what was that? Then two chapters later, she tells this story and she's like, you know, when I was younger, I wanted to be an astronaut. Um, but when I found music, I I realized I was going to land on the moon, except I was going to do it through music. Except I yes. think I just said it better than it's written in the book. Sorry. Um, <laughs> and what what I couldn't get was like the fucking moon quote was on the wrong chapter heading. And I was like, like, Casey, like, is this a ghostwriter thing? Is this a publisher? Or is this just like me being nitpicky? And like, she brought up the moon early and I should just like get over it. <laughs> I mean, I think it's probably just maybe being like a little disorganized and and not thinking it through a second time. Maybe just not not double checking that everything's sorted into the right bin. It's not your medium post. It's a like all right, yeah, okay. Then she's like, um, she drops out of school and and she was like, ah, oh, you know, I'm always sad I didn't go to prom. And I was like, boo, bad take, bad take. <laughs> like Fuck people who build up these moments you're supposed to have to make someone like Sheila E., who's a rock star, have in her heart. But you know, I missed prom. And it's yeah. like, boo. <laughs> like, who cares? I know. It really, it really just goes to show that, like, talk about like the ultimate, the grass is always greener, right? She's yeah. like living every, every young, not every young woman, but many young women's dream of like just defying expectations and living this glamorous life. And like, she's sad that she didn't get to wear like gunny sacks or whatever, you know? Yeah. Very yeah. weird. Well, so then, okay, now she's part of her dad's band and they go on tour to Columbia and she says there's so much coke everywhere that her dad takes her in a room. That's what I, I highlighted that because I wanted to read it because it like blew my oh, mind. Oh, please, please read it because I, I, yes, please read it. So her dad, she's in her dad's band and uh, he takes her on tour to Columbia and she says, Columbia was even more of a culture shock. From the moment we arrived, it felt like we were in the middle of Mardi Gras. It was an amazing experience for someone who hadn't yet turned 16. Fortunately, I had plenty of people around me to keep me from harm. Apart from the musicians and crew in our band, we must have had 20 others in our entourage, mostly for protection. Cocaine was on offer everywhere. As soon as we got to our hotel, we were mobbed by dealers selling giant rocks of coke, which would have cost $1,000 in America for five and 10 bucks. Needless to say, some of the guys were lining up. My mother hadn't been overly worried about me going to such a place, but she should have been. Even the coffee had coke in it. And after a few sips, I was wired. The night 
we arrived, the partying began. Pops took me into a room and locked the door. As I watched in amazement, he prepared two lines of cocaine and told me, have you ever had this before? I shook my head. I want you to try this right now in front of me. Everybody will be doing this, so I want you to be careful and tell me every time you do this, okay? <laughs> what? First, she wasn't even old enough to be drinking coffee, really. Never mind cocaine-laced coffee. And then her dad's, like, chopping lines for her. First of all, I just want to pipe in and say, Casey has the most incredible sons in the uh, world. Literally, like, her son Lincoln literally is the person who got Obama to be the speaker for the United States seniors class of 2020 online. And he just did it through his own ingenuity. And her other son, Eli, is like solving a murder on his podcast. So I just really trust your parenting advice. So I want to know your take on this because I know a lot of parents have a thing of like, well, I'm going to let them drink at home with me or or do drugs at home or have parties at home so that it's not this like forbidden fruit. And when they go to college, they lose their mind because they finally get to do stuff and they'll have like done it already in a controlled environment. It's very strange. I mean, um, I will say that like as a parent, there are times when I'm like, oh, would you like to have like a glass of wine with dinner at like a celebration or whatever? But cocaine feels like a very, it's very different. feels like very far from a glass of rosé or like a glass of Prosecco. Um, but I don't know. I don't, but also like in Colombia, I don't know. I've never been to Colombia. Maybe kids are like brushing their teeth with cocaine. I don't know. Which, I mean, it sounds like they roast their coffee beans with it, which you're also like, what? Like, that cannot be the correct take on that culture. It also kind of read to me, like, and I love, I love Sheila's relationship with her family. And from what I've heard, her parents are lovely. Um, People really dig her parents. Um, But it read to me, like, something that was just, you know, they're so involved in the music scene and something that was just like going on and probably like that the dad had experience with. And maybe he thought like, let me not be a hypocrite about this because, you know, well, you remember you all right. I learned it from watching you like that, that drug PSA from when I was a kid. (laughs) I mean, like, which is worse to do this, to say like, I want you to seek permission from me to do cocaine or to be like, you better never do cocaine while you like have like white crusty nostrils. You know what I mean? Like, wow. Great. I mean, listen, great point. Um, but I will say when we, I think anyone who reads and hears that you're like, okay, so we're going to forgive Sheila for a lot of stuff (laughs) because she's doing cocaine (laughs) when she's 15. Um, Okay, so then that brings us to, you know, she's like performing now. She's really out there. We're at the Carlos Santana story. So Carlos is uh, 28. Sheila is 18. She's known him since she was a child because he was playing with music with her dad. It's a real Frank Sinatra, Mia Farrow situation. Yeah, and you're like, okay. Um, And she says, despite knowing him since she was a child, that she doesn't know he's married, which feels impossible. When you're 18 and you don't know that someone that, I mean, and I guess like it's pre-internet times. So, you know, when you and I were 18, well, not when I was 18, the internet wasn't invented. That would be a lie. But um, (laughs) when you were 18, probably the first thing you would do is like Google a guy and like, you know, check his socials. (laughs) 
I, you know, unfortunately, I'm not that young either. I would say when and when I was in my 20s, Google City. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So on the one hand, I get it. Like, it's not possible to Google Carlos Santana, but also he was famous. It's even more than that. He was around your family the whole time. So even yes. if you don't know he's married, you do find out early into your relationship with him at some yes. point. Yeah. I think, I would think, um, but so then she's like, the, this story mirrors the Prince story also in a very weird way. But she's like, yeah, I didn't know he was married. And then his wife leaves because of me. And I felt so horrible. And it was also a secret for my family. So then we got engaged. And and we walk out on stage together. And my whole family was mad because Carlos is my dad's boss. And, right. like, we were engaged, but also, like, not really. And then she's just like, yeah, but then it was kind of over. And then he fired her father. Right. He fired, which which was the biggest takeaway. And then she writes, I ran into him later. And she skips over that the woman she was the mistress on stayed married to him for like 15 years after what yeah. Sheila says occurred. Yeah. So she runs into, and she doesn't mention that. She runs into him and she says, he's married to his current drummer, Cindy. And I hated this. I hate it. It was really hard to take in. She put in the book... That Carlos says to her, it's only because I couldn't wait for you. And Sheila, it's like, he's he's still married. This is mistress behavior. Right. Like, you can't be like, I didn't know I was a mistress. I feel so bad about it. And then put in your book something that will hurt his wife, Cindy, that also we don't know if he said it like that. And then right. she writes. And with those words, he finally released his little butterfly, his chocho. And it's like, why are you describing how he feels? Yes. This is your memoir. Describe yeah. how you feel. Yeah. You know, what's so weird to me about it is that it seems to me like I don't I don't doubt that Carlos Santana said that to her. I don't know. I mean, listen, how many times has a guy told you personally? Yeah, I'm like, I have a girlfriend or like I have a wife, but like it's basically over between us and we're not. And, you know, and like you can make a choice at that point to believe yeah. it. Or to realize every woman's heard this story. You've yes. personally heard it a hundred times. And it's always a lie. I still have women in their 40s saying to me, like, I met this guy. And yeah, he's married. But he says it's basically over. And I'm like, girl, <laughs> someone's been saying that to you since you were 15, probably. Like, This is like fuckboy 101. Yeah, it's, it is like the fuckboy national pledge of allegiance to say yes. that. So I don't doubt. And again, like all these people are involved in the music business and music like you know people are out on the road and things get complicated whenever people are away from their families it just does it just you know this like whenever people are shooting a movie or whenever people have jobs that take them away from home it always always gets complicated and I think like if you don't want to tell us your personal stuff like you don't owe anyone that but exactly. if you're choosing to write a memoir give us your heart Give us your truth, right? Like I I knew something was wrong and I just felt addicted to the feeling. Yes. And I, I chose to like, tell us what it's like to be in the other woman position and, and give us insight. And I feel like that's what this book is often missing. I feel like um, you have to read between the lines so much. I feel like you have to- Way too much. <laughs> so much because you have to be like, well, it's obviously she feels guilty about this and she, feel like she, she feels like she's done some wrong, but she still wants to like let her off the hook and have us think 
not badly about her. And also like, I think in a way she probably believes she is telling you her feelings. What she's telling you is Carlos Santana told me this thing and it still meant something to me, even though it's bullshit. And so even though it's not very sisterly or cool of me to put it out there because it's like shitting on his current wife, like I'm going to say it anyway, because it makes me feel good. And you know, or like I'm gonna blow up Carlos's spot for say- like that's the yeah. best case scenario is that yes. she's like listen this bitch said this to me so I'm just gonna put it in my book because he deserves to have his wife know what he goes around saying you know what I mean but yeah like- and like you know better choice DM her but sure also put it in your <laughs> book um uh, yeah I just it's it's like a lot of people it's like actually Madison.com didn't exist because everyone is great and good people right. do fucked up shit all the time. Just tell us about it. Let's connect. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Like, Gabrielle Union gives advice on how to cheat in her book. Yes. <laughs> like, which is amazing and just such so much more like honest with yourself and honest with everybody. And again, like, talk about normalizing things. Like, I think it'd be so awesome if we normalize, like, we all do fucked up shit. And like, you know, it just be especially in relationships. My goodness. It would be so good to not normalize fucked up behavior, but to normalize that we've all been like sort of bent in a way that we think these things are good ideas. And like that maybe you can sort of own your shit and not be harshly judged for it. So you can get better. So you can get better and make it up to people that you've done wrong to. Yeah, because it's not like, oh, it's normal to fucking hate your partner. We do. It's more like talk about that feeling so that we can all get better and like make a make a better society. Wow, kill me. I'm so sorry. Okay, I'm completely on the same page with you. (laughs) I thought that was so weird. And like, yeah, it's just it's so weird. But also it's like maybe it's like a weird power thing. You know, I read so much. I write so much fanfic in my own head about everybody, every celebrity situation. And so of course I'm like reading so deeply into it. Like maybe it was like a real fucking power move against her dad. Like, by the way, I'm in charge of your future now. Ah, fuck. Casey, this is why you should have been the ghostwriter. I mean, I feel like a ghostwriter also has to be a good therapist. That's yes. a lot. That's a hefty job. Okay, so now we're going to get into the Prince relationship, which is very similar to the Carlos one. Casey, you were such a Prince expert. Would you want to recap real quick just he and Sheila's relationship according to her book and what you know? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So she sees him at an Al Jarreau concert, I believe. She like locks eyes with him from across the way. And uh, they're roughly the same age. She's actually a year older than he was, I believe. And, oh, I love that. Um, yeah, the way that she... D- and I've heard her describe this in person, by the way, because I've gone to like a symposium at Yale where she like had an audience of like Prince fans. Oh my God, wrapped. incredible. Um, so I've heard her tell this story in person. In the book, she describes it as like seeing this beautiful young man who... Um, he's wearing more eyeliner than her. So like, that's a place where it's kind of fuzzy because I know as like a Prince lover at that juncture in 1978, he wasn't really wearing makeup and he was like, still, (laughs) he was still like a natural guy. And so this is before he started doing sort of that gender bending thing. But you know, in her defense, his eyes are very beautiful. They are very green. Maybe it looked to her as if he was wearing eyeliner. So anyway, so yeah, so they don't, they just lock eyes. They don't meet that night. And then she winds up getting And she's like, tickets. we become friends. She's like, we become yeah. friends. And he's sending me flowers all the time. All the time. Well, she he's seducing she, me. 
She gets tickets to go see him with her friend and um, she forgets to ask for backstage passes. She uses her connections. She gets tickets to go see him. And uh, but she like wheedles her way backstage using like, you know, I'm Sheila Escovedo and uh, I'm not on the list. And so they let her backstage and she just immediately sees him like looking at himself in a mirror, which I totally believe because the man loved a mirror. And uh, (laughs) and so she's like she locks eyes with him in the mirror and and she's like trying to get her courage up to say something. And she goes up to him and says, hi, I'm Sheila. And he says, I know who you are. Me and my guitar player, Andre Simone, have been arguing over who's going to marry you. And so she's very flattered that she that Which he also, knows who. Which also, Fuckboy 101. Yeah. Fuckboy yeah. 101. If, if way before they know you, they're like, I'm going to marry you. And God, I feel like I love you. They trying to fuck. <laughs> they are so, taking yeah. the easy path to fuck town. <laughs> Yes. So that's when they sort of meet and exchange numbers. And like, she just thinks that what I think is that he probably really did admire her quite a bit as a musician. And um, one thing about Prince is that he was always very, very open to working with women. So during a time when like, bands that were out there on the road and bands that were popular at that time were just mostly guys and staffed by guys and just everything was, you know, boys club. He was very open to like, let's have this woman keyboard player. And then he built a band that was half women and he really respected them. Yeah. And you know, I'm not the Prince fan you are, but through um, these memoirs, and I said this in another podcast, I don't remember which one, but he popped up so many times as women uh, and particularly women of color thanking him for yes. elevating women, elevating community and creating places for them in Hollywood. And so I, on another podcast, I was like, it seems like Prince was incredible to women, but then reading this book and the drama around it, it feels like, and you don't have to comment because you're a Prince fan, but it feels like sure. he was incredible to women on a global scale, but in his personal romance, it sounds like he maybe really fucked them up. Yeah, well, it's it's something that's really interesting to me. And again, like I am always with the fanfic. Like I have deep theories about this, which like maybe someday I'll just do like a one-off podcast talking about my please, deep theories please. about this. And I think for him, it was like part of like a control thing. Like he really kind of was a Svengali with all of these. Uh, you know, he really wanted to build this stable of performers. And that's also an interesting story too. It was because he was so prolific that the record company wouldn't let him put out the amount of material that he wanted to put out because that would have been several albums per year. So he decided that the next best thing was to become like sort of this, uh, you know, this boss that had like a couple girl groups and a couple guy groups. And they were all basically just extensions of himself. He was writing all the music and performing on everything. And 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 Sheila was one of those. And and she was part of it. Not to come. I'm I'm not Prince in any way, but like I, my old representation used to be like, slow down. Like, why are you doing so many projects? Like, let's be patient. Like one at a time. And I finally was like, no, yeah, no, I will do this on my own pace and you're no longer involved. Right. And like, I've had people be like, well, you can't do a short film in three weeks. And it's like, I will, if I want to, Yeah, I will, if I want to. And I did. And if you don't like it, that's fine. But like, stop telling people to like slow down or you're doing too much. It's like, just, oh, or don't do anything. Yeah. But like, respect the pace of whatever your inner pace is. Yeah. He just really never slept or ate or anything. And it, the year 1984, he did so much just in the year 1984 that like encompassed more material than people's entire careers sometimes, just the mm-hmm. one year, 1984. Wow. wow. And, 
so to bring it back to Sheila, she was kind of like, I think he was looking at her like, you know, and he could make a star out of anyone, basically. And he did like people that didn't have like great stores of talent, uh, natural talent. Um, but Sheila did. So I'm sure to him, that was very exciting. And he probably just was like, you know, we could do great things together, which they did. Which they did. But then she says at one point he turns around on stage, mouths to her, will you marry me? Then she's sort of like, there was never a ring, but I shouldn't have had to ask. But then she also doesn't, it's like one sentence and you're sort of like, wait, what? She's like, we're engaged, but also she like gives no details. And then she's like the same thing. Like, yeah. And then we kind of like fell apart. She says someone told her Prince was scared to love her so much. And I was like, (laughs) fuck boy 101. Fuck boy 101. I can't be there because I'm scared of this. Is like, oh my God. Like, It's like they all read the same book. Um, And she she opens for Prince and she goes on this big tour and when she comes back, they're like, okay, you owe us millions of dollars. Yes. And she's like, wait, you weren't paying for it? And they're like, no. And like, remember that time you made an assistant like go to France to like get you a fur coat? Like you owe us that. Yeah. And she's like, what? And now she's like millions of dollars in debt. Didn't make any money on the tour. Prince like sh- wouldn't let her go home one time. And she, and she owes him all this money, but like she doesn't even talk about it. And then she's like, yeah, and then we're over. And you're like, what? It's also wild because like, well, they shared managers for one thing. He set her up to like sign with his managers. And so in some ways, I'm kind of like, that's on you for not reading the fine print. But also like when you're just starting out, you don't know that there is fine print. Totally. And I've I've definitely gotten into those situations where I carried it. So that's true. Yeah. It's just millions of dollars is like a big fine print. Someone should have told her. And the way that she's describing herself, she was kind of like being a diva. Like she says she was a asshole. And I believe it. Yeah. She's like making plans to go like on a weekend getaway to one place and then changing her mind and canceling that and going to another place and paying for two trips and just just some wild shit. It's always funny to me, like working in entertainment. Like, do people sometimes think you're a millionaire? Like they're like, oh, I know. One thing that's interesting. Okay, so she opened for Prince on his Purple Rain tour, which was when he was at the height of his success. And then they sort of went their separate ways and she came back to be on his Sign of the Times tour. And that is uh, purportedly where he turned around and mouthed Marry Me to her. So she was actually in his band and his musical director at that point, rather than just opening for him. I see. Well, Um, and also we should say there, and and we can't, we don't have time to get into it, but there's there's drama in the Prince world where people have come out and been like, that's not true. And, but you know what? This isn't their memoir. This isn't their turn. When they write their memoir, we will read it. Um, Apollonia said in my memoirs, plural, she would dispel this. So looking forward to many memoirs from her. One thing I want to talk about is when um, Prince helped Sheila do her, her first album that included the smash hit Glamorous Life. She writes, the Glamorous Life was the last song we worked on, in fact, as an instrumental, and I couldn't think of any lyrics for it at first. Once I got started, though, the words came quickly. She's got big thoughts, big dreams, and a big brown Mercedes sedan. What I think this girl she really wants is to be in love with a man. She wants to lead the Glamorous Life. She don't need a man's touch. Without love, it ain't much. But what I would like to point out is that, and again, I wasn't there. I don't know. She's sort of intimating that they wrote the song together, Mm -hmm. which 
is possible. But recently, post Prince's death, his estate put together an album of demos that he did. And that's like, if you're not familiar with how it works when you're a songwriter, when you you write your own songs, but we're saying Prince is so prolific that he's writing tons of songs for other people. So he wrote songs for Kenny Rogers and he, he wrote <laughs> songs for Sheena Easton. And so on that album originals is his original demo for the glamorous life, which suggests to me that he came to her with a tape and said, I want you to make oh, this song, man. just sing what I already sang. That's what that, suggests to me it's possible that they wrote it together and then he cut a demo for it and then she did her own so i don't know but what i do want to say is he also gave her half the publishing rights for the glamorous life even though it's possible she didn't write it i think he he might have actually given her full publishing rights for the glamorous life you know you are you are a a masterclass. A masterclass. Okay. So anyway, so it, he, it, it might have been a situation where he felt like, I set you up to be a millionaire. So if you mismanaged things on your end, yeah. like, I can't really help you. Well, it's also tough. When we're supposed to understand it and get into it, you have to describe it more. Again, you have to give us your heart. Yeah. And and she doesn't. So it makes it hard to yeah. have any conclusions. Yeah. So, okay. I'm going to get it. Uh, I'm going to talk through a few points. So... She then is kind of like away from Prince and doing her own thing. There's a story about how she writes a song for Whitney Houston and how Whitney thought, Whitney Houston thought Sheila E. was hitting on her. Mm. I thought that was uh, incredibly weird and in poor taste to include because, you know, there's now a book out that Whitney's best friend and manager writes a book and alleges that that they were lovers and that she was closeted. And I've heard it's a beautiful book about women and, and Whitney and queer culture. Uh, I haven't read it, but it is. And then definitely they like include this story. You're just like, for, for what? And then right. she moves on. Then, I mean, the book, the book here starts taking multiple turns where I was like, oh my God, she starts putting other women down and she's like, I'm special because I'm a tomboy and cool and other women aren't cool. And that's why Prince liked me so much because like, I'm not like other girls, my fucking pet peeve. (laughs) Then she's like, I used to be naked all the time. And then I realized it's more empowering to cover up. And it's like, okay, Sheila, like what's empowering for women is whatever empowers you, the individual woman. Like it's not clothes. It's not, not clothes. It's, it's whatever you feel empowered by. And I started being like, did Sheila become born again Christian? Like I started getting these heavy born again Christian vibes. Yes. And sure enough, you flip a page and she's like, Jesus is my savior and he better fucking be yours. And my true purpose was never music. It's preaching the Lord and using my music. And I mean, I think faith is so beautiful. I unfortunately don't have any, but I know <laughs> so many um, ministers and pastors and female rabbis and and these these leaders and, and their faith is just like beautiful. Like they talk about their faith in a way that like brings the feeling of God into your life yes. and you like love it. Sheila does not do that. She's like, I accepted the Lord and Satan attacked me. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, wait, what? Yeah, that's, it's, it's weird. It's strange. Again, it doesn't surprise me. And again, like talk about patterns and connectedness. She's not the first um, woman from Prince's life that became sort of devoutly religious and renounced everything in her past. As Prince did. Yeah, I totally get what you're saying. Because like, I feel like 
whenever anyone's talking about being spiritual, I feel like it's so great when anyone could get something out of it. Like, even if you're like, this isn't for me, but I can see how this would like apply to me. I don't like feeling shut out by something. Also, if it's it's your purpose to bring people to the Lord, you got to you got to bring um, little witches like me in. And yeah. it's I, it's hard for me to get there when you um, yell at me in your book. You catch um, more little witches with sugar <laughs> than you do with vinegar. Little witches love sugar. <laughs> um, okay, so then there's um, a, a Nicole Richie story, which yes. I actually don't want to get into. And, and you can counter me on that, but this is Nicole's story. And when Nicole writes her book, we will go into that story, but like shitting on someone's paternity, their adoption, stuff like, like that is not your story. Right. And I felt like Sheila was really cruel to her in this under the guise of I love her. And I felt like she actually talked a lot of shit while pretending to like be positive. And I didn't like it. And I just want to wait for Nicole's book. Yeah. It's just all very confusing because, well, look at, there's like, this is like the, um, the juncture of probably like six stories, you know, it's Sheila's perspective, her brother's perspective, who is Nicole's biological father, her former sister-in-law's perspective, or were they ever married her? But this woman, Nicole's biological mother is a good friend of Sheila's and who's like not with her father at the time. Then we have Lionel's perspective. And then we have Lionel's wife's perspective. And then we have Nicole's and it's mostly yeah. Nicole's story to tell. She hasn't told it. I just think people like love to be like, well, who's is whose kid is Nicole? And it's like, that's her life. And yeah. that is a centerpiece of trauma. She'll tell us when she's ready. Yeah. And if you really love her, you'll respect it. And also, I think it glosses over the fact that like Nicole is Nicole's person, you know, and that yeah. that like these questions of like paternity or parentage or whatever are really kind of unimportant in the scheme of things. It, Nicole's parents are who Nicole feels her parents are. And yeah. so any any type of like issues with that. What I know is that she seems like a really good person and she's really funny and creative and artistic in her own right. Well, and also as someone who finds it horrifically painful to talk about and you have to go into your own family, you have to dissect dissect your own family. It's just like you just don't know what it's like. So just like let yeah. let people tell you how, you know when they're ready. Okay, so then Sheila, this woman Lynn becomes a massive part of the book in a way that was kind of odd because I love a female friendship story, but she doesn't write about it in a way that like gives over the friendship. Lynn's just kind of like there. Yeah. And with Lynn's help, Sheila's like, I got to call up everyone who molested me and I have to find my rapist and I have to forgive them. Lynn's the one that brought her to the church in the first place. That's right. Yeah. Lynn is a musician. She's been, she was a harlot, I guess, for Bette Midler. Oh, um, okay. And, it, but then she acted as Sheila's manager because she was so adept at business. And she brings Sheila into the church and she feels like part of Sheila's healing should be to call everyone that ever did anything to her. And then Sheila does. She talks to the cousin. Then she tries to find her rapist and he's dead. And and for her, she really wanted to offer her forgiveness to set her free. And she can't, which I found crushing. And then then the biggest twist of all, we're we're almost at the end of the book. She goes and does the third season of the reality show Gone Country. And And spoiler alert, she wins the shit out of it. She wins it. But also you're like, what? And she's like, we jumped out of Black Hawk helicopters. And you're like, on Gone Country? And then, I mean, the book's, like, fucking off the rails at this point. And she's kind of, like, talking about it with esteem. And yeah. I went and looked up, like, 
her country song that won. And I was like, what's happening? Can I bring up one thing about Gone Country? You know how we talked about how she was like basically like having a hard time at the beginning of the book just coming out and saying that I was raped as a child and how she keeps ramping up to it as a dramatic device. What I did find interesting is that Gone Country is this reality, ridiculous reality show where people are trying to like, you know, fish out of water reality show where people who aren't country music artists are trying to like write a hit country song and perform it and win this competition. And so she's describing the night when she's going out to perform her country song that she's written. And she's saying that the audience is being very disrespectful and they're talking and they're not paying attention. And so she says to the crowd, like she's about to be like, fuck this and walk off the stage. She's written this song that's very personal to her and is, you know, meant to be very healing. And these people aren't here for it. So she says, does anyone here have a five-year-old to get people's attention? And several people raise their hand according to her. And then she says, when I was five years old, I was raped. And then she does her song. And I'm like, That was so abrupt compared to the beginning of the book where she was like, oh, yeah, you know, just like, here's my story. Here's what this is about. Let's be real. I like that interpretation of it because I have to say when I read that, I I really didn't like that. And I think I want to say I think it's my own damage. Like I keep my trauma intensely to myself. In fact, like doing this podcast has been the most I've talked about myself in my life and it feels fucking weird all the fucking time, (laughs) which is what a podcast is. So I'm obviously out of my mind, but um, I've always kept it to myself. And so I think like I judge like using it as a weapon, like, or using it as a stage thing, but it's probably only because I never had the guts to talk myself. But then when I see her being like, you're going to listen to my country song because I'm going to tell you I was raped. I'm just sort of like, nah, like... I was, I don't know. It's true. It's really, it's a super fine line, you know, because when is it like, uh, you know, this is like healing art or when is it like to win a reality competition? Um, Okay. Okay. Last page of the book. I am no longer trapped in the cocoon that held me captive for so many years. Thanks to God, family, friends, and the rhythms of my drums. I learned how to experience joy and trust. I am convinced again of my own innocence. I am soaring free. Now when darkness overwhelms me, disquieting my mind by summoning painful memories, I don't have to keep the light on or wait for daylight before going to sleep. I seek solace still in God, in family, in prayer, and in the rhythms of my drums, pounding out beats that emphatically convey a message to that little girl of my past, telling her she's beautiful after all, encouraging her, me, to keep flying. And the reason why this is my favorite page of the book, because the page after it has a bunch of handwritten text written backwards. Yes. And I, at first I was like, do I have a weird copy of someone's personal book? Like what's happening? I had to look it up. Sheila can fluently write backwards, which I think speaks to that drumming skill set you talked about. She mentions it earlier in the book. She says um, when she would be on the school bus, she would write in the steam on the school bus windows backwards and that she became so good at writing backwards. Um, that, she does autographs yeah, backwards. Yes. yes. So um, I guess that's where she noticed that she had that skill. But yeah, it is like you have to be able to do so many things independently and sort of 
disconnect your brain from what your body's doing or like just let your body do what your lizard brain knows it needs to do so that to do anything like that to to play four different drums at four different times while also singing like I don't know if you've ever tried to do that but it's really I couldn't um, I couldn't do one tenth of, I can barely brush my hair like come it's on a, it's a lot you know it's like that that um old saying that or that joke that people like to say uh Ginger Rogers did everything Fred Astaire did but backwards and in heels like yeah. that is what you know that's what being a drummer kind of is it, it's a lot more than you would think well it was cool it was, it was a cool last page of a memoir I've never seen anything like it um, yeah. okay so we end every podcast with a thank you to the author so um Sheila thank you you paved the way not just for female drummers but for for vocalists who also drum and thank you for sharing your abuse like the the type of crime she went through at five is unspeakable and probably a huge part of why she didn't, couldn't give more heart in this book. It, it, it affects you forever. Yeah. And, um, and, and, you know, my heart is just like with her and, and like anytime you can have the ability to share this in any way, like I just thank you. And I also want to thank her for literally having Prince's exact haircut during the years when they were dating. <laughs> That was, I mean, that was like definitely a team haircut that that was team haircut. part of the uniform, <laughs> I think. I just want to thank Sheila for, you know, I just feel like she's a damn good drummer. A lot of people yeah. have a lot of things to say about her and a lot of you know, doubts about her motives or her interpretation of things. And that's all valid. And, you know, just as much as her telling her own story is valid, but you cannot deny that that woman is a master, a master. If you watch the sign of the times concert film, she's at this giant kit of drums and Prince calls her out and he says, everybody, you know, give it up for Sheila E. And then she does a solo. And then he says, not bad for a girl. Like, and that's his like big joke that, you know, but the, the point is, is that she's a master beyond gender and her, her disbelief that an instrument could ever be gendered is such a gift. Yeah, you cannot gender objects. (laughs) Yes. And we talked about her not noticing any, you know, not noticing kind of big, obvious things in her life. She also didn't notice that, quote unquote, drums were for boys. And thank God she didn't because she's just the best. I love that. I love that. Where like maybe a fault turns into a gift. Casey, okay. (laughs) um, So tell us where people can follow you. And also everyone already knows about your podcast, which is like wildly, but but ah. tell us again, um, with the amazing Shantira Jackson and Busy Phillips, you have this incredible podcast. Yeah, Busy Phillips is doing her best. You can catch it on Wednesdays. It comes, it drops on every Wednesday, and it's wherever fine podcasts are not sold. And then you can just like follow me on Twitter at Casey or um, my name spelled weirdly C A I S S I E, or I'm at Instacase on Instagram. She's a great. I'm biased, obviously. You're my friend. Great follow. I get advice. I get movie recs. I get articles. Like, phenomenal follow. Phenomenal follow. And just, like, thank you from the bottom of my heart for you sharing your story here. Um, And you really deeply touched my heart as a human in my own life. But, like, thanks for sharing it on this podcast for, you know, whoever's listening. I love you so much. And I thank you for being my friend and for for always hearing anything I have to say, whether it's on a podcast or in private. Group thread forever. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Bye. 
I loved having Casey on this week's episode. She is just such a Prince masterclass. And if you guys want to see the visual story that goes with this week's episode, go to my Instagram at Chelsea Devantes. I will post pictures of Sheila and Prince and Casey, and I save it in my highlights so it's always there. Or if you want even more Celebrity Book Club in your life, go to the Facebook group, Celebrity Book Club Podcast, and that's where you can start your own discussions and deep dive even harder. Coming up in the next few weeks are some incredible episodes. Uh, I don't think I'm overselling them. Uh, We're recapping Celine Dion's book with Stephanie Beatriz and Carly Simon's memoir with Leighton Meester. And then after that, there's a really special Valentine's Day episode that I'm just, I'm so excited for and we're going to announce it soon. So if you are enjoying the podcast and you want to leave us some stars and reviews, I love it. It would mean the most to me. I read, I I read every review that comes in and um, you can always pass it along to a friend and get some, you know, real book club started, whether it's in a group thread or, you know, whatever. I could not do this podcast without our amazing production team here at Stitcher. Producer Brandon Nix and executive producer Daisy Rosario and associate producer Corinne Wallace. You can listen to ad-free episodes of Celebrity Book Club only on Stitcher Premium. And if you'd like a free month of Stitcher Premium, go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code BOOKS or just keep subscribing here on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And finally, you know, we're in a pandemic and there is nothing that will bring a bigger smile to your face than being in your old gross pajamas, however many days of not showering, eating whatever leftover mac and cheese you have. And in that moment, put on the song Glamorous Life (laughs) and and turn it up. And I, I feel very confident it will bring a smile to your face.